All right, take your Bibles and uh, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. I know it's been a while since you've been in Luke. You remember that? Remember our study in Luke? Let's go back to the 12th chapter of Luke where we left off and let's resume our study of this great time in which the Lord is determined to head to Jerusalem and at every point he is giving some of the greatest messages and discourses and discussions with the crowd listening to him and his disciples being instructed. Some of the greatest encouragement, some of the most profound warnings in all of his ministry. It can be very challenging to protect the clear biblical message of the gospel in a culture where you're free to express it. You might imagine that it should be the other way around, that where you're free to express the gospel, where believers are free to evangelize, then there would be this bold, sort of widespread passing on of the truth in the clearest way possible. If we have that freedom, why should it get muted? Why should it get confusing? If we're free to pass it on, then there should be generation to generation no confusion about Christ as the only Savior. There should be no confusion about the futility of trying to work your way to heaven for the scriptures say it's by grace alone. You'd think that where Christians are free to properly proclaim the gospel, there'd be this passing of the baton from one generation to the next without compromise. And that we'd always be careful about who truly follows Christ and who doesn't. And at least for a little while, in those places where the gospel has had free reign, at least for a little while, there have been a succession of back-to-back generations of clear gospel ministry. Eventually, however, gospel ministry can get comfortable, too comfortable. Christians can enjoy their religious peace treaty with the culture around them so much they begin to view the collision course that the gospel is on with unbelief as not inevitable but really unnecessary at times. Or maybe the result of of a bad PR campaign. Or maybe the turmoil that the gospel creates is, is really just the result of the church being too narrow, unnecessarily narrow. You ever had Christian friends tell you that? That your Christianity is too narrow? That it's certainly not what Jesus would want? And it is in these times of relative friendship with our surroundings that believers are most vulnerable to the compromise of the gospel. In fact, conversely, it's times of tension, times of pushback, times of persecution that Christians have been tighter. We've thought more clearly about the truth. We've been sobered up. Things have ramped up. When I was with my dear friend Ryan Penny in Dubai, who pastors a church there, he was telling me that just eight weeks prior, the the royal family in Dubai sent out an edict that said that evangelical churches were marked out and they no longer could meet in their meeting place of choice. They were going to be given two options by the, by the royal family and they would have to meet in those places. And it was eight weeks old, this edict, and so it was kind of fresh. No one really knew what it meant. But evangelical churches were talking perhaps more than they had. The unrest that sometimes exists between churches of like mind, but where there was personal animosity, suddenly that goes away because you're starting to think about, well, wait a minute, if if we start to get persecuted, we've got to think about the truth in clearer ways and more unified ways. We've got to protect the truth of the gospel and its proclamation. 
That's what happens when tension comes. More is at stake. You have to be willing to take a stand for the truth, and it's going to cost you in a greater way than it had before, especially if something violent is coming against it. In those places, however, where the truth has been relatively free, proclamation has been graciously allowed by God in his kind providence, then there is a greater danger of this sort of creeping, the the lack of clarity, the creeping in of murkiness and confusion. In the absence of personal suffering, even the most devout believers can begin to get comfortable and let their guard down. It's into that kind of soft environment over time that Satan begins to coddle our comforts and he sets us up for weakening our convictions so that we don't stand strong. Subtle forms of error start to get introduced and we don't see them because we're not paying attention, we're not on the alert. That's the most dangerous scenario of all for the gospel where freedom of expression has been enjoyed with the world for some time. We can tend to to let the edges grow soft. But the gospel, beloved, the gospel, by its very necessity and spiritual implications, always exalts what is righteous and puts it on a collision course with what is unrighteous. Of necessity, that is the case. It is always on a collision course with error and what would destroy It can be no other way. In Luke 12, as Jesus is giving these discussions and these warnings about who you should follow and what the fruit should look like and where the clear lines are drawn, he continues and in this particular section says things this way with regard to the the outcome, the fallout of a clear gospel. Notice verse 51. Do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They'll be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, and then extended family by marriage, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and so forth. This is how the Lord Jesus states the reality. This is what he fully expected to happen when someone is transformed by the gospel It's on a collision course. There's an inevitable fallout. Why does it have to be so? Well, the first reason Jesus gives for this collision is that he came to bring that kind of thing. Notice verse 49. I came to bring fire on the earth. I came to light a fire. And he says, I tell you no, verse 51, I came to grant division. I came to cause a separation. You say, Jesus did that? Yes. The Prince of Peace is the sovereign of separation. He is the Father's line drawn in the eternal sand. He is it. And that's why ministries, if they want to hold fast to the gospel truth, they have to make it about Christ. They have to make it about what he says his purpose is. They have to make it about what he says his work accomplished what it means for the sinner and the implications for the sinner. A church has to make it about those things or it will lose its clarity in the gospel. And that's exactly what happens and 
Evangelicalism has been no stranger to this continual problem, and we see it even in our day. The reason the clarity of the gospel often falls into confusion in churches today is because we, first of all, forget who the Savior is. We forget who He is. We don't, we don't like the Jesus that He reveals Himself to be in Scripture, and so we sort of change Jesus into something that's malleable and, and the culture accepts a little more readily. We also get murky on why he came and he gives his purpose very strongly here. And then when we start talking about the inescapable results, we don't like it. We do not like it. As God's plan begins to deal with sin and as sin runs its course, we do not like the fact that this line in the sand that Jesus draws has an impact, it has an influence, it has a fallout. This has been, by the way, Jesus' constant warning. Look back at chapter seven for a moment. Just keep your finger in chapter 12 and look at chapter seven. You remember all the way back in chapter seven, verse 23, Jesus had said, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. How blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. Look, people will be offended at me, but don't you be offended at me. Don't you... Don't you imagine that the reproach that comes from following Christ is something you've got to throw off. You don't throw off the reproach. You wear the reproach. If Christ wore it, you wear it. You wear it because you follow him. You identify with him. Listen, you can't get baptized in a church as a way of identifying with Christ, and then when the reproach comes, you just decide, I'm not going to admit my baptism. I'm not going to admit I identified with Jesus and his people. Jesus says, no, no, don't, don't do that. Blessed is the one who doesn't take offense at me. Look at chapter 9 of Luke, verse 23. You remember this well. If anyone wishes to come after me, he's to deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Notice, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. And verse 26, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory. People will be ashamed of me, but don't you be ashamed of me. He'd been saying this all along. Look at chapter 11, verse 23. Luke 11, verse 23, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. Look, when it comes to me, people will never be neutral, he says. Don't you be found against me. There is no neutral place. You cannot imagine that you're standing in a position of neutrality. If you're not for Christ, where that collision happens, then you are in some measure distancing yourself from Christ at best, or at worst, you're not a believer at all. You don't know Christ. And look at verse eight of chapter 12. I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the son of man will confess him also before the angels of God. This was Jesus' over and over message. People will resent that you confess me before them, but you keep looking to the time when I'll confess you. And then you remember, we had studied last time, just leading up to this section in chapter 12, where Jesus warned about squandered opportunity. Look, when he returns, what will you have done with your opportunity? Will you have squandered it? Will it have been wasted knowledge, he says in verses 45 to 48? Will you have waited casually, doing very little, unuseful, always under the chastening of God? 
hanging on to creature comforts? Or will you ignore any amount of truth? Because the danger is if you ignore truth, God will, as a judgment, take that truth away from you. You weren't a good steward of the truth. You buried it in the ground. You ignored what God was doing with it. You did it for self-preservation. He takes it away. He makes you more murky. He allows you to go stead, headlong rather into greater confusion. You've seen that. People who profess Christ, been a part of evangelicalism for years, getting more and more confused about the gospel, more and more confused about Christ. The things they embrace today, they never even would remotely have thought to embrace in terms of error years before. Jesus warns about that. How do we renew and recalibrate and stand strong in our faith and prepare for what soon may come? Well, that's what Jesus does in this section. In this section, in verses 49 to 53 of Luke 12, he tells us, look, this is my purpose. This is why I came. And I want you to know why I came because I want you to align with my purpose. That keeps the gospel clear. And having aligned with my purpose, I want you to know what you're to tell men and women, that I am the mediator. I came for a baptism, and I underwent that baptism. And you cannot change the message. There is no other way. And when it has its fallout, you must know, I told you it would have its fallout. Families are going to split over this. How many of you have had that grief? Family members spouses, extended family members. Man, the influence rolls on, doesn't it? And blood may be thicker than water, but it isn't thicker than the gospel, or so Jesus declares. And sometimes when that line is drawn, the gospel gets murky because we would rather have a superficial relationship with all that is around us regardless of what the gospel's doing. That's what Jesus does here. He talks here about the, the work, his work, his person and his work, Calvary, the cross, that everything is about his work. It is the apex of everything. And he's teaching us here how to protect the gospel, whether we're in soft times or hard times. He's teaching us how to avoid getting comfortable. And he's teaching us to love what he loves and to be aligned with his purpose and to tell lost souls that he came to identify with sinners and they must come through him. And then when there is fallout, just know Jesus came for that. He came for that. We don't like to think of it that way. In these words, he reminds us of his purpose and his passion for it. Notice first of all in verse 49 then, he came to set the earth ablaze. He came to set the earth ablaze. What an interesting statement. I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. It's a very interesting statement made by the Lord Jesus. What does he mean, I have come to cast fire upon the earth well, we know, first of all, he's telling us that that is his ultimate purpose in his incarnation. Why did he ultimately come? To set the earth on fire with his person and with his work. To start this process. To draw the line in the sand. 
His cross, from that point forward, as the substitute for sinners, it would be a demarcation. The Father was drawing a line in the sand. He is mediator, he is Messiah, and there is no other. Collision course may come, but it doesn't change our mission, our message. Christ is at the center of everything. That's why, beloved, a church that wants to keep the gospel clear must be about the words of Christ from his word, always about Christ. We sing about Christ, we live for Christ, we think about Christ, and we align everything we believe with his word, with his voice. He is Lord of his church. When a church gets away from God's word from the pulpit or gets away from any talk about what Christ has revealed himself to be and starts to change the message for a superficial peace, it is over. It's over. When I was uh, traveling, I, as I said, live streamed in here and I, I, I love it. It's not just that I'm spying a little bit on the ministry no reason other than to be encouraged. I'm halfway around the world and I get to tap into the ministry. It's sweet to see the ethos and the people gathering and the worship. But I have no fear that when someone stands here at what church history calls the sacred desk, you're going to hear an opening phrase, something like, open your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to this. Why? because the Lord is the voice in his church. And I know if there's someone here who's rightly dividing it because of the unashamed work they have done and they tell you to open your Bibles, you're gonna hear the voice of Christ. It is gonna be about Christ and the gospel will be protected. I love that. I absolutely love that. Jesus says, I came to start this process, I came to light a fire. We also know that some in the crowd may have had to do a bit of asking as to what Jesus was referring to, but by the time Luke wrote that Jesus said these words, he offers no explanation. So it must have been fairly clear by the time the readers of Luke were reading this in the Gentile world what Jesus meant when he said, I came to cast fire on the earth. So it's probable that many in the crowd that day connected the dots pretty quick. You say, what were, would have been the dots they connected? Well, Jesus had said things like this before. In fact, if you look for just a moment at Matthew chapter three, you notice that Jesus had already mentioned this whole idea of a cleansing process or a fire that does a cleansing process or a separating process. You know, in Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist is talking about Jesus and his coming, and this forerunner makes some statements about him. Notice he says in verse 10, the ax is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's basically saying, look, this is gonna be a polarizing ministry, the Messiah, when he comes. This is gonna be a polarizing ministry and the ax is already laid at the root of the tree for making this separating of good fruit from bad fruit. As for me, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance. When you come to me and I put you in the water, it is because you are saying you want to repent in anticipation of a Messiah who would come and be your substitute. And so you're to bring forth the fruit of repentance which is confession and brokenness and your need 
That's what you come with. That's my baptism. But he who's coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals. Look at this. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So the Spirit of God is involved in this imagery, and the fire is a fire of cleansing or separating. You say, how do you know? Verse 12, his winnowing forks in his hand, just using that wheat and chaff imagery, and he'll thoroughly clear his threshing floor, he'll gather his wheat into the barn, and he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know what they did. They had that mixture of grain and the chaff, and they tossed it into the air with that winnowing fork or the shovel, and the light of the chaff is the lightness of the chaff not being uh, connected to the grain is blown away by the wind, and the heavier grain falls to the ground. They sweep up the grain, put it in the silo. That is the food, and the chaff is swept up over here in a pile and thrown in the incinerator. A separation occurs. It's a cleansing process. So you separate the good from that which is useless. This made sense in the immediate context to a culture that understood the harvesting of wheat. And so back to Luke 12, Jesus says, look, I came to cast a fire on the earth, and it's likely that many people in the crowd understood immediately that the, Jesus, that the, the fire Jesus wanted to cast the earth was a separating fire, a ministry of separation, a drawing of a line in the sand that cannot be blurred. He would start a fire that would separate the true from the false. So that tells us, beloved, that when Jesus said, I want to light a fire on the earth or turn the earth ablaze, it is with himself. It is with him as the apex. It is always about Christ at the center. You want to witness to somebody, you make it about Christ and hearts will be exposed. You want to talk about theology, you make it about all that leads to Christ and the gospel and you will expose hearts. Somebody wants to wrangle about philosophical questions, take that, listen to it, interesting, lead them all the way back to Jesus Christ. What are you doing about Christ? What are you doing about his claims, the person of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth? What are you doing about that? Because that will expose hearts. This is the fire Jesus lit with his coming to, to do his work on the cross. It was a separating fire, and it was also a, a cleansing imagery and a judging Im imagery. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, John the Baptist said, in Luke chapter three, verse 16. Again, fire is the image. There had already been, therefore, in the minds of the people, this strong connection between Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, a work of cleansing and a work of convicting, a work of refining and a work of judging. The term Holy Spirit, by the way, was already known. David had mentioned it in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He was empowered for service as the king. They understood the concept of the Holy Spirit in Jewish thought. Isaiah 63.10, they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. This is common Old Testament parlance. And then the coming of the Spirit in the last days was well attested in the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel. The idea that the Spirit would come and, and do this refining work and this regenerating work and this new supernatural work and even a convicting and judging work. That was conceptually normal stuff in the Jewish mindset. And then the idea of burning 
in order to do the cleansing? I mean, even Isaiah chapter four, verse four, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning. Here you had the concept in the Old Testament of the spirit coming and the spirit's work and there would be this cleansing and purging and convicting and setting apart, separating So the first century Jew and perhaps well-informed Gentiles in Palestine, this pouring forth of this work of the Spirit was understood as a cleansing work, a separating work, a saving work, a convicting work, and a judging work. So even when John the Baptist said he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, he was saying he's going to make a separation. He's going to draw a line. And when you align with it, your life is going to cause a collision. If you follow Christ, you are on an inevitable collision course, even if you've had free expression of those things in your culture around you. So back to Luke 12, Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to finish his work on the cross and in effect set this fire ablaze on the earth with his Spirit's work regenerating sinners, bringing conviction of impending judgment to those who reject Christ. Drawing a line in the sand. So the reason the church loses the gospel is because we try to coddle sinners. We try to coddle them, but Jesus didn't come to coddle sinners. He didn't come so we could binge on a hallmark gospel we find emotionally comforting. He came to light a fire that would draw a line. And when you identify with Christ, and you've been saved, you are not in a neutral zone. Your life isn't neutral. Jesus Christ came to be the Savior and a sacrifice for sin, and in that process, separating souls. He came to be the Father's dividing line, to hang between souls and to call men and women to decide either for him or against him. That, he says, is his ultimate purpose. And that, beloved, is our ultimate purpose. And notice his passion for it. How I wish it were already kindled. (laughs) Literally, how I wish it had already broken out and begun it to spread. Now, some commentators have suggested this is like Mark 14 when he's in the garden and he's saying to his heavenly father at the the mere thought of, of experiencing a foreign guilt that was not his own and he was recoiling at it and saying, Father, if there's some other way, please let this cup pass, but not my will but yours be done. Some think he's saying the same thing here. Oh, how I wish it was already kindled and I could bypass what I have to do. But I don't think that's the emphasis here because notice what he says in the next verse, in verse 50. I have a baptism to undergo and I'm distressed until it is done. He came to set the earth ablaze, but he also came to do his work, and in that work, he says, I have, a, I have an experience to be immersed in, fully immersed in. So what does that tell us? That tells us, first of all, he came to set the earth ablaze, and secondly, he came to identify with sinners as their only substitute. You want to keep the gospel pure, you stay aligned with his purpose. You want to keep the gospel pure, you tell sinners that he is the only substitute they have. It was his baptism to undergo. No one else could undergo it. In fact, the same sentence structure here in verse 50 
is, is, it's a similar force with verse 49. I came to cast fire, how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am till it's done. You have this sort of cadence happening as these two statements are interrelated and carry a similar force. What does he mean I have a baptism to undergo? Well, he's referring to his death. He's referring to his death. And when, when a goofy moment happened, really a profoundly inane moment on the part of James and John, you know, they, they want to sit on the right or the left. And what does Jesus say? Mark 10, 38. Uh, are you able to drink the cup I have to drink? And then he says, are you able to go through the baptism that I have to go through? He's referring to his death, being immersed in the experience of what it means to be one of us, the second Adam, our substitute. What is the implication here? Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo. I am going to identify with sinners fully. I'm going to be one of them. I'm going to go as their substitute. I will be the God-man and I will be the second Adam they need. But here's the implication. This collides with the human heart in the world because if you're going to make a clear gospel, you're going to tell people that they must accept that Jesus, the one who identified with sinners who need a Savior. Look, if they don't need a Savior, if they can get there on their own, who cares whether some guy from Nazareth wanted to identify with sinners and said he was from heaven? What does that matter? If you're not dead in sin, then there's no necessity of the cross. There's no necessity of a substitute. What's the point? A bad humanitarian experiment? A bad extreme version of sympathy which cost him his life? That's about all it ends up. And, and frankly, that's what evangelicalism sometimes does to the gospel. We don't tell people that... Their only savior is the God-man who went through a baptism which identified him with sinners fully. And that's you and that's me. Evangelicalism doesn't tell them that anymore. Oh no, you, you can identify with the Jesus of your own making. You can identify with Jesus and your higher power. You can identify with Jesus and your religion. You can identify with Jesus and your candle burning and your rituals and whatever else you want. There are plenty of extra saviors out there and even if you want one whose name isn't Jesus but is part of some other dynamic you can have that too that's what we tell them Jesus says no I have a baptism to undergo I will be immersed in this work completely when Jesus calls his death a baptism, everyone present would know that he was re referencing being fully immersed in the work of identifying with sinners in their need for cleansing. You want to keep the gospel pure, you have to know Jesus is the only one that could undergo this baptism and he's the only one to which a sinner can reach. That's it. You plead with Christ, that's all. If you make ministry about Christ as the only substitute, you keep the gospel pure. Is it on a clinician course? Yes, because the human heart doesn't accept that. I don't want to admit that I need Jesus. This was the Pharisee's problem in John 9. Are you telling me that I'm blind? And Jesus said, if you knew you were blind, you'd have no sin because you'd already run to me as the only one who underwent the baptism. But because you think you see, your sin remains. They didn't want to hear that. 
He wanted to kill him. He came to his own hometown and he was the reader at the synagogue, you remember, in Luke 4, and he read and he said, today, this very scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the one fulfilling it. And they were just loving the sermon and loving it. And then he said, you know what? God visits Gentiles, not Jews. You say, was he anti-Semitic? No. He's saying, you have missed your Messiah because you don't accept me. You know what they did? They took him out to a cliff and tried to throw him off. Look, there was a collision course with the human heart because the human heart does not want to admit that Jesus is the only one that could undergo this baptism and be your substitute. If you want to keep the ministry clear on the gospel, we have to tell people they need a substitute. And they cannot add Jesus to a host of substitutes that they've come up with on their own. All are gone, there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be redeemed. He is Messiah. He was identifying with sinners. Even in his own public baptism, that's essentially what he said. He didn't need to be forgiven for sin, and yet John's baptism was a baptism that called for the fruit of repentance. Well, Jesus didn't need to repent, but he came out into the water and said, baptize me, and John the Baptist said, you're the Lord, I need to be baptized by you, and he said, no, I need to fulfill all righteousness. What did he mean? I am gonna identify as far as I can with the sinner that I'm saving. If he needs to express that he's coming in humility before his Father, just know that I am identifying with the sinner even though I don't have sin. I'm identifying with his sin. I am coming alongside him to be a substitute for his sin. No other savior can do that, has done that. No other message of a savior will do. Remember years ago, the Boston College had a theologian on their staff who was trying to say that he'd he'd had some dream. And in this dream, there were the patriarchs, Moses and Abraham, and they were all chatting and, and they were all you know, talking about the different ways they got to heaven. And of course, the author was postulating that in this dream that he had that it was proof that there were all these other ways to heaven and when we get to heaven, God solves all of our squabbling about it, but we all, though, had different paths, we all got to the same place. It was blasphemy. It's not true. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and men. One mediator, the man Christ Jesus. How? Because he was authenticated by his father as Messiah. And the Messiah identifies with his people. He is their only substitute. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, look, I have a baptism to undergo. I'm gonna immerse myself fully in it. I identify with sinners because I am their second Adam. I am the one that is their substitute. And they're the one, I'm the one they must come to then. You wanna keep the gospel clear? Don't, Don't tell people they can have some other Messiah, some other redeemer, some other addition. Don't tell them that. I know you have some relatives who are in works-based systems, and I know they seem like sweet people, and I know their religion seems to make them fairly moral and nice people to be around. That's wonderful until they meet God. So you must pray. 
You must pray that Christ draws a line in the sand and that the fire lit by the cross hits their world at some point and begins to be a fulcrum that forces a decision and you're there to give them hope and the answer and the gospel. You don't want to be a church that coddles something different. And Jesus wanted to light that fire. And notice he says, and I, or how distressed I am until this is accomplished. What does he mean by that? It's, it's an interesting verb. It means he's, he's seized upon, he's held until that process is finished. Well, you remember, Mary, when she sees him after the resurrection, grabs his legs and he says, let go of me, stop clinging to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go tell my brethren, John 20, verse 17, say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Why was he doing that? Because you remember he told the disciples in John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit's not gonna come. The fire isn't gonna perpetuate. I'll light the fire at the cross. The Spirit is going to carry out the fire. If I don't get exalted to the right hand of the Father after the resurrection and go away from you, the Spirit won't come and perpetuate that fire. And so he's saying here, I have a baptism to undergo and I am under restraint. I'm oppressed and seized upon until this is accomplished. I want it to be accomplished. I wish it were already on down the road so that we could make a separation between those who are in and those who are out and it could be clear. I'm under constraint until it's accomplished. Man, what a a heart he has for drawing that line and making it clear. Why? Because he's saving people. He's rescuing souls. We are playing around with these things as an evangelical movement and And why not? We've had free expression of it. We live comfortably in it. And if there is any kind of trouble, now we smooth it over. But he says, I came to light that fire and I came to identify with sinners as their only substitute. And then lastly, he says, I came to set the true against the false, no matter the relationship Notice, this is amazing, verse 51. Do you suppose I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. I know you don't like that statement because you sent out a Christmas card with something else on it. Peace on earth. Well, of course you did. Why? Because we read Ephesians 2. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Jesus came to bring peace between us and God. He did not come to settle all accounts horizontally. In fact, notice from now on, verse 52, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, two against three, father and son, mother and daughter, daughter mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, on it goes. Man, that's hard. No wonder the gospel gets murky. It's interesting that Jesus mentions family here. Of course, man, that is very, very difficult. I know you have loved ones you would love to see in Christ. And the longer they reject the gospel and you have to interact with them or you get the privilege of interacting with them, the more difficult it becomes. 
The gospel can get murky in your mind. Conversations can get difficult to navigate. Jesus pulls us back here and says, look, I came for the purpose of lighting that fire, drawing the line, I'm the only substitute. It will have a fallout in families. It will have a fallout in the closest relationships that you ever experience. And so I'm telling you that because I want you to know I came for that. I came to be the center of everything. I came to make myself the issue. I don't want you to make peace with human beings the issue in your life. I don't want relative harmony with the culture to be the pinnacle or the goal. I want those things to be rejoiced over if they happen, wary of if, if they happen for too long, beware when all men speak well of you, Jesus said. Always on the alert. Satan is subtle, praying for harmony in the gospel, but knowing full well if it's about Jesus, it's going to draw a line. It's going to separate. I have loved ones and family members outside of the gospel. It is hard on my heart. It is difficult and I wonder, Lord, how am I going to protect the gospel in my heart so that it stays faithful? I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be personal. I don't want to be retaliatory. I don't want to be fearful. And so Jesus brings us back here and says, look, I came for this. I came. I'm making peace between sinners and God. But in doing so, while leaving you here, and until I set up my kingdom and the fire is ultimately quenched in glory, you're going you're gonna to see a fallout. And you're going to have a tough time with that fallout because it's going to get real personal. It's going to come right into your home. It's going to come right into your marriages. It's going to come right into your in-law relationships. And the gospel separates. You must stand. Why? Because the moment you don't, you're making it about something else other than Christ. No wonder churches lose on this. Because we're losing the battle in the family with the gospel. I'm not saying you shouldn't go to family functions and love on people. You should. I'm not saying you shouldn't speak carefully and wisely and in a timely fashion, which is hard to navigate. But you should think about those things. Let your speech be seasoned with salt and with grace, Paul tells the Ephesians and the Colossians. Yet, what is going on in here? Is Christ the issue? Because when he's the issue, he says, look, your love is going to be tested. Your allegiance will be tested. You remember what Luke will go on to record Jesus saying in chapter 14? If anyone loves father or mother or brother or sister more than me, if you claim to be my disciple but you don't hate father, mother, brother, and sister, he doesn't mean actually hate them. He means your love for me makes all other relationships look like the opposite. You must love father and mother. You, you love father and mother more than me. You have an allegiance for a human relationship. That's going to cost you the truth. It's going to cost you the gospel. Eventually, it'll cost you your own salvation if you stick with that. Because you'll make peace with unbelievers. You'll try to bring light and darkness together, and it cannot exist together. 
Beloved, why hasn't evangelicalism been able to protect the gospel? <laughs> because we're not aligned with the purpose of Christ quite often, and we want different redeemers than just Jesus quite often. And when the, the inevitable collision happens, man, we, we want peace some other way quite often. We are a ministry of the gospel, personally, corporately. If you're in Christ, you, you are on a collision course with loved ones in your own home. It is inevitable. Not all of them, perhaps. Maybe a season the Lord will save dozens and dozens and dozens of them. I marvel at the grace of God in families, don't you? I marvel at the spread of the grace of God. I marvel at how kind he is after we've prayed for decades. I marvel at how kind the Lord is when he has to save no one. He doesn't have to save any of us. I marvel at that, but I'm no longer surprised. I am less and less surprised the more I align myself with the purposes of Christ who lit that fire and the Holy Spirit is carrying it on and it's a separating work and there's fruit that's bad and fruit that's good and we let the line be drawn and we plead with men be reconciled with God. We persuade them as though God are persuading, is persuading them through us and if it comes right into your home, separates your children from you, grandchildren from your love for Christ, let Christ be the issue. And the gospel will be protected. And you'll be a faithful servant as Christ calls for here. He says, look, you ought to discern the time in his next little comment he says, you know, it's hypocrisy to, to be able to tell the weather and not be able to see on the horizon the spiritual dynamics. It's hypocrisy to claim to, to know certain things about the natural world and to see nothing about the supernatural world when you claim to be so connected to God. It's an interesting argument that he makes right on the heels of this one. He's basically saying you ought to be able to discern the times. I don't know what God has in store in a country where there's been so much freedom of expression for the gospel. But the collision course is inevitable and we have to ask the question, have we become too comfortable or are we robust in our faith so that when Christ comes, he finds us good stewards of this wonderful message of Christ alone? It's about Christ, beloved. It's about Christ in our life, Christ at the center of our message, Christ for whom we live, Christ in our families, Christ with coworkers, Christ at every part of our life. Everything else we do is flavored with Christ for the sake of serving Christ. Anything less is a seed of compromise if not compromise already. So we need strong alignment with the Lord here. Do you know his purpose? Do you align with his purpose? Do you tell people he's the only substitute and that's it? There are no others? He underwent a baptism. He immersed himself in identity with sinners and he's the only one they can turn to? And are you ready for the fallout 
Are you accepting of it, embracing of it, praying for it? Not, not loving the grief of it, of course. Not wishing for the grief of it, but the honor of Christ is at stake. Do you, do you want to honor him to the point where your love for him transcends all that other stuff? The Lord does not want some weakened gospel and confusing message coming from our unwillingness to align with his purpose. So he states his purpose very clear. He's come to light a fire, and he did. Spirit perpetuates that fire, align with his, his work. It separates. They're known by their fruits. You speak the words of Christ, hearts are exposed. It could come into your family life. Is that going to be all right with you? Because the Lord himself is the divider. He's the line in the sand. We need strong faith, don't we, to take a stand. Let's ask him for it this morning. Father, thank you for your, your cautions here and your clarity. You said to the disciples all around that you would do a separating work, that you would immerse sinners in this great convicting work and separating work, that you would cleanse the humble and you would be opposed to the proud and you would set up for judgment those who refuse you. You would pour out grace upon grace in those you're saving. And if there be a separation, we should know your purpose. Your purpose was to light this fire and you were passionate for it because you were passionate for the work of the Spirit in this separating work. Thank you for undergoing this immersion into, into our infirmity and taking it upon yourself. Thank you that you were distressed until it's accomplished, held up until it was accomplished, nothing bypassed. Thank you that you reconcile us with the Father and grant us eternal peace while at the same time this division brings unrest and division even to those we love but we must stand with you. Our ministry must be about you. Hold us fast. Help us stand. Give us courage that is supernatural. Wisdom when we speak with those we love who don't know you. May they see mercy and compassion in our service and sacrifice. May they hear a love for you that is unflinching in our praises and worship and may they hear from us hope in this great message of the gospel as we give it to them regardless of the reaction. Help us as a ministry to protect the gospel this way we pray for your glory's sake. Amen.